Hello, this is Roger. I'm joined by Lee, and we have more games than time. So I've played uh, a game I've played quite a bit in the past, but I, I still enjoy it, and it has a Kickstarter for an expansion ending on the day the episode goes live. They don't but consult us about this. Uh, <laughs> v Commandos. A so. game I've heard much about and never played. Well, it's World War Two themed and very much... Which is why I've never played it, I think. Fair enough. <laughs> uh, very much inspired by uh, stealth shooter uh, video games mm-hmm. rather than, you know, real-world tactics and so on. Uh, yeah. In fact, I believe they use the same basic system for the Assassin's Creed board game, um, right, which okay. should be reaching people quite soon. So, you know, basically, you, you have a small group of commandos on some special mission. Mm-hmm. Uh each of them has has a special power. Uh, each turn, you've got an event card. Uh, players go in whatever order they like, and then the enemies react. Then it starts to get slightly more subtle. Uh, for, the event card will usually tell you which way the enemies are going to be moving if you don't draw their attention. Right. So each turn, you have this this sort of mini puzzle of here is where we can be to avoid being seen. Mm-hmm. At the same time, we want to make progress towards the overall goal. So, you know, you pick your moment, you run past. It, 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 I, I find it quite atmospheric. It is very much about the stealth, unlike most World War II games. Um, right. If you go in blazing away, is there a bit of, um, be bit of cold it's in that. Um, not really. This is, this is much more your SOE. Um, yeah, I was just thinking mission. in terms of, you know, World War II and stealth, really. Oh, right. You mean the, the, the classic? Uh, yeah. Game. yeah, which yeah. I, I played many years ago. <laughs> uh, yeah, and one, one of the things you can do, for example, is take an enemy uniform, uh, mm-hmm. and then that, that, that works as a disguise, but it, it's not perfect because, right. yeah, th- thematically they, they might, you know, shout, shout something that you, that you ought to know the answer to and you don't. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it will help. And, one one of the problems I think is you you do have characters who have you know explosives and big guns and so on and to be honest they don't get a lot to do if you're playing it if you're trying to be stealthy and if you don't try to be stealthy you don't tend to do very no, well. It's, it's a bit hard not to be seen when you blow something up. Yeah, well, it, as far as I'm concerned, the the ideal mission outcome is everybody leaves the board and in the last action, the last guy to leave the board sets off the explosive charge and then the enemy yeah. realizes, oh, hey, there was somebody here. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've never, as well as never playing this, I've never played any of the, actually it's not quite true, I was going to say I've never played any of the Assassin's Creed video games. I think I did play about two hours of the first one and got very, very bored. Yeah, I, I, in the early, early 2000s, I did play the Hitman games and very much enjoyed them. Mm -hmm. And that was a similar thing where you could play it trying to be as stealthy as possible and really, it was a success if you managed to get through the entire thing with nobody seeing you. Yeah. But alternatively, you could just go in with guns blazing and try to kill everyone so that there was sure. <laughs> nobody left to report having seen you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so I, I guess I, there's a similar kind of feel to it in that. The entire staff of our secret base appear to have shot each other. <laughs> well, I'm yeah. sure that's not suspicious. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's it's very much emphasising the stealth side of things. Um, mm. the, you know, there are some missions you can do by just you know, run and gun, but that's... Mostly it isn't. It, it, it's quite an abstracted game. Um, mm-hmm. 
it, it's all in tiles, and the, the, the tiles have artwork on them for rooms and outside spaces and things like that, but basically a, any large tile is the same as any other large tile. Right, okay, there's no uh, specific rules to being inside or i mean i imagine there must be sort of cover rules and well basically the the difficulty to hit goes up the smaller the tile you're on so in in a large tile it's it's generally impossible to hide and it's very easy for people to hit you i I think the idea is there is it's not not so much how big the space is as how much stuff there is in the space so in in, in a large tile they're saying there's not much to hide behind it's almost counterintuitive in many ways it is yeah uh, whereas, as, if you're going room to room in a small tile, it's going to take you longer because it takes you longer to move from one tile to another. But right. there, there are more spaces to hide in, and okay. So, so yeah, I can I can see why that would work from the gameplay point of view, even if thematically it's a little odd. Yeah, it, it is an interesting combination for me of a very strong theme with mm. often somewhat abstract game mechanics. So one one of the pieces of equipment you can get is a bombardment. This is the ability to call in a airstrike. In a particular place, and that's just a piece of, <laughs> and of equipment. Of course, it never misses. Well, it it, it can actually, but uh, <laughs> but yeah, that, so that's I just a piece to, of equipment. I went equipment to university you, you in Exeter, it. where the, where they managed to completely miss the cathedral, but bomb everything around it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and you'd, you'd think you know, big big sticky up thing. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a bit of a target. target. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, that, that's just a piece of equipment. You you you, you carry it in one of your equipment slots. Mm-hmm. It's very trivially soluble because there's basically no hidden information between players. Uh, yeah, so, so it's just it's a f- fully co-op game then. It is completely co-op, yeah. Yeah. Uh, normally, and, and you play solo by playing two, effectively playing the role of two players. Yeah, you'd normally play multi-handed. Um, yeah, there, there's there's nothing hidden, and you each turn you can choose the order in which you activate the mm-hmm. the, the players. So that's. I guess there is a potential alpha player problem, as in any game that doesn't have hidden information like this. Uh, yeah. The thing I always say is that's I think that's more a social design social problem than a game design problem. But, yeah, no, yeah. We, we've we've talked about this before, and I think we both agree it's it's not a game problem; it's a people problem. That said, if you have people like that in your group, this may not be a game for you. Yeah, which is uh, fair enough. It doesn't have miniatures as standard because uh, <laughs> the recent Kickstarter had them as an option. Right, okay. Uh, the, the standard game, you know, you've got these square and rectangular tiles, you've got flat cardboard tokens for mm-hmm. doors and equipment and enemies and your guys. And as far as I'm concerned, that's fine. Some people yeah. like miniatures. Obviously, a lot of people have gone for that. It, it, it's there as an option now, but I don't feel they will improve the game experience. And I, I would, you know, I would suggest that if you missed the Kickstarter and wanted miniatures, there's not a shortage of World War II miniatures available in the world. There's that too, yeah. <laughs> I mean, they, they, they've tweaked it a bit to try to, uh, because uh, your, your commando can be in one of four states, uh, stealthy, uh, visible in mm-hmm. an enemy uniform or um, out of action, right. which, which puts a timer on somebody rescuing them. Um so the miniatures make that more complicated because with, with the cardboard tokens, you've just got two tokens that are double-sided. You put down the side that's appropriate to w- what state you're in. With the miniatures, yeah. it, it's all fiddly with extra tags and things. Yeah, yeah I, I think that's... Uh, maybe we can talk about that in a future episode. That's often a problem with miniatures in board games. Yeah. Uh, so you, you can play a single level, um, which is basically get into a place, do a thing, get out again. Mm-hmm. You can chain several levels together. Um, they, they have, I think, in the core game, you've got eight operations, which are sort of three or four levels in sequence. 
mm-hmm. uh, some of those go in parallel. So if you ha- particularly have a lo- if you have a large group, um, you can sh- uh, switch back switch groups back and forth. So you might have three go into the north side, three go into the south side, and then right. t- then exchange and go one one guy goes goes over to help the other guy because the mission's succeeding on one side and not on the other. That kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So you've got a bit of flexibility there. You, the uh, the drawback I would say is that once you've played a particular level a few times, you may well find you have a a good solution for it. Right. Okay. And are is there a lot of variety in missions? Are they generally sort of you know assassination or espionage? Uh, I, I think or what's so. Yeah. I mean, in in game mechanical terms, they generally take the form of get to a place, do a thing. Mm-hmm. But uh, some some of it is go to this place and grab the documents, which are, are just a notional thing. They're not a separate token. Some yeah. some of it is uh, plant explosives in these three places. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes it's res- rescue these prisoners, and they they are then um, non stealthy, and you have to get out quickly with them be- before the enemy can respond. Right. Um, with within the overall theme, I I think there is, there is a fair bit of variety, but. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, I think the best argument for getting the expansions is that you get more terrain cards and more operations because that's the, to me that was the thing I ran out of first. Right. Okay. I, I still feel there are, there are things to do with with the core game commandos even without the extra mm. stuff. But um, if you particularly if you play it quite a bit, uh, you mm. I, I think you can you can find okay we've done this operation before. Well, so I haven't looked. What's the, the community like on Board Game Geek and things? Are there a lot of fan-created missions? No, which is odd. I mean, I've, I've thought about doing it myself, and I, I may well yeah. at some point. Um, doesn't seem to have happened much so far. Does it, uh, it, it sounds from what you're saying like there's a, a lot of scope for that. It shouldn't be too hard. I mean, it, generally, an, a, a, an operation card is... Well, there, there are multiple parts of the card, but basically what it contains is a set of maps in a particular mm-hmm. order... Uh, and some sort of special rules. So some of them say things like, when you go into this one, uh, the alarm's already sounding, or this particular door doesn't exist on this map, but you have to blow a hole in that wall as part of this particular mission. So you basically, right. basically minor changes on mm-hmm. w- what you would get if you, if you use the terrain card on its own. Right. So, yeah, I, I like it a lot. It's, I, it's a game I've had a lot of fun with. Um, I know one person who feels that... In terms of the gameplay experience, it's sufficiently similar to Flashpoint that he doesn't have room for both in his collection, which is fair enough. I mean, they're, they're both mm. no hidden information cooperative against an automated have you, enemy. Have you ever played Fireteam Zero? I mean, that's the other thing I've heard comparisons. I have not. I don't know. No. It. Okay, that's another cooperative um, military <laughs> type game. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's more card based. Is is V Commanders is a dice based thing, isn't it? We didn't talk about that. Um, yeah, uh, for for shooting, a weapon has one to four dice, and you basically yeah. ro- roll those against the um, size number of of the tile, mm. two, three, or four, uh, to, to try to get hits. The, the more the more hits you get, the more enemy you can kill in that one shooting action. Right. Nice, okay. Um, Just like real life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So yeah, that particularly with a large weapon, that can f- can feel quite random. Mm-hmm. Um, the o- other thing dice are used for is stealth checks, which is basically wh- when you might be seen. Um, each enemy who might see you rolls a die. If they get a one or a two, you've been spotted, and that will raise the alarm. Right. Uh, I would yeah, dice. You you can sometimes set up a mission so that you don't actually have to roll the dice very much, if at all. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but that, that's the things they're mostly used for. And of course, you've also got the event cards, which they'll tell you where the enemy's going to be patrolling to, but they will also have some special effects, like, right. you know, I found the fuse box, uh, we can treat all indoor tiles as small tiles and sneak through them for this, for this round. That kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, some, some of them good, some of them bad. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I've, I've had a lot of fun with this. I'm, I'm certainly planning to keep playing it even, even before the uh, new expansion. Good. No, it sounds like you're having fun. It does sound like there's a good bit of um, variety and interest in it. Some interesting decisions to make, and some uh, yeah, variety to keep you coming back at least for a while. Yeah, it's also been quite hard to find for a while. Uh, the the mm. publisher is uh, Quebecois, and they have some distribution, but not great distribution. Right. I I had no idea that it was yeah that it was Canadian. Uh, first time I was aware of it was uh, UKGE a few years ago, mm-hmm. and for a while it seemed like. There was lots of copies here coming out of UKG, and nobody in the rest of the world could get it. Oh, right. Fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> I was obviously mis- mistaken. It has been hard to find for a while uh, in, mm. in, in Europe. Um, what, what I think I discovered it uh, late, late 18, and I managed to pick up a copy at Essen then. Yeah. Uh, but it took, it took about a year to find one of the expansions right. after that. But presumably okay. they're going to be reprinting everything for the Kickstarters. Yeah, so. that's got to be the aim, isn't it? So hopefully it'll be easier for everyone to get, well, a year or so down the line if you don't back it or late pledge if there's a late pledge option after our show goes out which there probably will be i mean they usually uh, is, there normally is this day yeah <laughs> so that's uh v commandos by tibor de latuan okay um i'm gonna go small this week roger i'm gonna talk to you about a couple of games that uh two of my favorite solo games mm-hmm. and the first of those i want to talk about is peloponnese the card game mm-hmm. um have you ever played either Either that or its big brother. Uh, no, I think <laughs> I think I've seen a board for the for the for the big one, but right, okay. that's about it. Okay, so Peloponnese the card game um, is very similar. I've, to be honest, I've never played Peloponnese myself, but from what I understand, they're very similar games. Um, Peloponnese is more tile based. Um, and Peloponnese, the card game, is a tableau builder, effectively. Mm-hmm. Um, and in both games, what you're doing is you're building an, an ancient Greek civilization, township, country, whatever you want to call it. Um, and you will also face some natural disasters during the course of the game. Okay. Um, and that's where the big difference is between the two games. Again, having not played the original, my understanding is that you will get hit by those disasters. I'm not sure if you know the order they're coming out, but you will get hit by them. Okay. Um, in Peloponnese, the card game, you have the option or the the potential to to mitigate them and avoid them. So what happens is at the start of every round, you reveal six cards, which are the cards that you can purchase to bring into your tableau. Okay. Um. Three of them go to the right of a card which adds... So each card has a a cost printed on it, which is what it costs to add it to your tableau. Um, In multiplayer, you're bidding. In solo, you just play that. You just pay that cost. Okay. Three of the cards that you reveal, that's the cost. Three of them go into what's called the conquest row. And they cost extra. um, An extra three points of coins over the printed cost. And the first two that go into that card row also trigger go towards triggering the disasters. Okay. So each of these cards 
um, has a symbol at the top of it which correlates to something like an earthquake or a tempest or some kind of natural disaster. There's, mm. I want to say there's five of them in the game. And the third or fourth, I think third time that each of them um, appears as one of the first two cards in that conquest row, you advance a marker each each time the each time one of those um, icons appears, and when it hits yeah. the third one, that's when the disaster strikes. So you know approximately when something's going to be coming. You've got a uh, yeah, you've got a fair idea that something's more likely than another. If it's if it's only got one more space to fill up, it's more likely to come than one that hasn't taken any spaces up to that point. But yeah, you you could draw two cards with the same type, same icon in a given round, and it could advance two spaces. Sure. So you never know exactly when it's going to happen, but you've got an idea what's more likely. The flip side of that is that as you collect these cards into your tableau with those icons on, if you've got three matching icons, you're protected against that disaster. Okay. So there, as I say, in the card game, there is the potential to avoid these disasters completely, and you can keep an eye on what's, as you just said, is more likely to be turning up and think, oh God, I can't afford that disaster to hit now. I need to do something about it. Mm-hmm. So that becomes part of your decision in building up your tableau. Um, your tableau generates stone and wood, which are used for building other cards, um, population and food. The food is needed to feed your population. The population is one of the two things that you score at the end of the game, along with power points, which are printed on some of the buildings you can build. And your final score at the end is the lower of your population and your power points. So you need one of these games where you need to keep your eye on two different scoring potentials. And at the same time, you need to be generating money to buy cards. Yeah, so and, your money... And, and thinking about... Some, some of the buildings you build have a cash bonus the moment you build them. Some of them do generate one coin per round. For the hmm. most part, however, um, your income is tied to your population. The greater your your population the greater your income and it moves up in bands up to a maximum okay um any uh surplus population any surplus um production convert into luxury goods as they call them which you can use to like an additional income once you've used yeah. exhausted your other income or um or production resources in a given turn um, and that's the sort of the basics of you, you're trying to, to build this up, um, build up your population, making sure you've got enough food for it, build up your, your power points to make sure your population, you're know, reflecting the size of your, um, and power of your civilization whilst mitigating these disasters. It takes about 30 minutes to play. It's not a long game. Mm-hmm. Um, it's played over three eras, as they call them. Um, each of which I think lasts for three rounds. Um, and those um, di- different sort of, sets of cards. Different sets of cards, more expensive, more powerful cards as the game's going on. Um, there is a, a small expansion you can buy as well, um, which adds one additional era of one round, and that's basically bonus scoring opportunities. So if if you can't get hold of that expansion, you're not really missing a great deal, although it's nice to have. It's just an extra round on the end of the game. Okay, I've just been looking through uh, some pictures of the components, and I, I see that Conquest is mentioned, but only as a fairly minor thing, it looks like. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, that conquest is um, it's it's an interesting word (laughs) (laughs) because there's i mean again i've only played it solo um yeah but i don't think there's a great deal of direct player confrontation um in the multiplayer game you're bidding on the cards um but you're not going and stealing cards and raiding people and those kind of things it's purely just a a more expensive area of the of the offer deck as it were so competitive in the in the sense that a worker placement can be a bit competitive yeah yeah, yeah, and it's um, it's a it's a tableau builder, so it's got some of that sort of um, you know almost worker placery euro type feel to it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, au- auction game, bidding game, not auction game, bidding game in multiplayer. Um, so it, it just works really, really well. Um, so in in the single player, what what replaces the uh, opponent's bidding cards up from under you? Um, so. In the six, in the solo player mode, what you've got, um, where you divide that offer into, I said, two sets of three cards, mm-hmm. um, whichever set you take from, the opposition, the AI takes the rightmost card of the other set of three. Mm-hmm. And if it's the, the conquest row that, where you'd have to pay extra to take it, they also get three income cards. Right. Um, coin cards, effectively. So the, the coin cards are coins on one side and resources on the other. Mm-hmm. Um, at the end of the game, every six coins you've got counts for, or uh, sorry, not say every six, every six goods you've got counts for one point in your power, as it were. Yeah. Um, some of these cards, as well as, um, food, stone and wood also have population on them. And that counts as a population at the end of the game if you've still got it in your oh, hand. Okay. So by giving them three coin cards, you don't know what's on the other side of them. You're potentially giving them quite a few extra points. You just don't know. If it's if you give them three population, that could be a really big boost. Yeah. If it's three other resources, then you know that it's half a point effectively. So it's not such a big deal. But you don't know what they're getting until you reveal them at the end of the end of the t- uh, game. So you're still choosing the things you want, but. You yeah. you have to be you have to be careful about what you give up, in in return. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, so that you know that that can play into it. Um, sometimes it's worth paying the extra to get a card from that section just to deny them getting the extra three cards going into their pile. Mm-hmm. So, sounds like a lot of fun. Um, look, looks from uh, just casually look, looking at the board game geek pictures as, as though it's uh, quite quite a small box with a fair bit. It is, to it. yeah, normal sort of, um, yeah. Small card game type size box. Uh, yeah, um, I've I've been playing a, a lot of big stuff recently, and, and it's nice to think. <laughs> but yeah, here is something that is not huge, but but still gives you an interesting and complica- complex experience. Yeah, exactly. Um, and it, it fills that role really well. You know, of an evening, so you know where you've got half an hour. Um, you want to play something with a bit of thought to it, um, but you don't have a lot of time. Then it, it's perfect for that. Mm-hmm. And that's by uh, Bernd Eisenstein, I believe. It is. I have been playing a. Okay, this is, this isn't as doesn't feel as strange to talk about as um, Touch of Evil did last time. But li- li- <laughs> Leaving Earth is. <sighs> it feels as if it's been designed by somebody who is outside mainstream board gaming. I mean, he isn't. Joe jo Fertilla is the designer, and, and he he is involved in in other you know the California board gaming scene. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, it's designed other games, but but it uses a bunch of non-standard mechanics because it, it's very deeply thematic. So rather than right. being, you know, a worker placement game or a hand management game, it's, it is a game about exploring the solar system mm-hmm. with the mechanics that it needs to support that rather than standard ones. So, so it can be a bit, a bit of a steep, um, start to, to the learning it. You have, mm. you have to pick up a fair bit at once. Ba- basically, you are planning and operating space exploration missions. From right. from the 1950s onwards. Okay, okay. So this isn't a sci-fi thing; it's a, a space thing, as it were. Yeah, the, there's a slight SF element to it because um, you, you've got a map of the solar system and mm-hmm. e- a, a card for each location. Right. But some some locations have multiple cards. You choose from randomly. You, you don't know which one you got at the start of the game because it's based on knowledge of the solar system before the space probes. Because you're starting in the 1950s, okay. So yeah. you you don't know what's on. You know that Venus is cloudy, yeah. And you know it's going to be this diffi- this much difficulty to get to Venus orbit and then then put something into mm-hmm. its atmosphere to land it. But you don't know whether it's going to be the huge heat and pressure that we have in the real world or oceans of liquid water, which was which was yeah. another theory before we had the better data. Mm-hmm. Uh you may have a mission that says put it, put a man on Venus and then bring him back to Earth. Yeah, and you just don't know whether that's even going to be possible at the start of the game. <laughs> uh, yeah, maybe Mars will be faithful to the spacecraft that land on it. You, you, you say it's always nice to send a survey first. Mm. Um, you you get a a draw of, mi- of missions. Uh, there are mm-hmm. uh, easy, medium, and hard ones, and you set the game difficulty based on that. Yeah. Um, and they they are things like that, you know, put a probe on series, bring back a sample from Mars to Earth, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And some of these may turn out to be impossible. So, right. okay. yeah, if, if it turns out that you can't land on Mars, then all all the missions that involve landing on Mars are off the table. And you, your your winning condition is you you have more than half the available points from missions. Right. And uh, is that something that you'd find out at the beginning of the game so you could just reset or is this sort of, you know, halfway through the game you suddenly find out there's no way you can possibly win? Well, it, it's not so much that, that it, it's more that you may find out you have suddenly won. You know, right. so, so, say, say you have 40 points on the table to start with from various things and, mm-hmm. and you've got 15 of them and then you just suddenly discover that, that the big Venus missions aren't possible. They yeah. are, they are taken out of contention. So all of the, you know, 27 points that are left, you've now got more than half, so you've won the game. Right, okay. And that, that, that is part, part of the solo. Um, mm-hmm. in, in the solo game, you just need to get half the total points on the table, and nobody else right. is taking them. Okay. Uh, there's no AI or anything in the solo, it's just, uh. Yeah, it, it is, it is a pure solo, and you're, you're, you're trying no. to get the, a sufficient number of missions. Mm-hmm. The thing that I think is unique to this, I, I've played a, a few space games, certainly not all mm. of them, um, but most of them seem to have a fixed mission plan, as it might be, you know, here is the lunar landing mission, and you might have yeah. a couple of variations on it, but basically that that is a, a mission you have to do. In this, you design your own. Yeah. So if if you want, say, to bring back a sample from the moon, you, you are going to have to launch a lunar sample into lunar orbit, get it back to Earth orbit, get it back to Earth. But how you mm-hmm. get the probe there to collect that sample, um, there are very various ways of doing it. You you might do a direct everything in everything in one spacecraft. You might decide, okay, I'm going to leave the return stage sitting in lunar orbit 
to, to meet the sample as it's launched from the surface, which will, right. make, which will make it a, a lighter mission, which is therefore cheaper and easier to do, but will mm-hmm. require me to develop rendezvous technology, which I don't okay. have by default. So th- there are lots of, lots of choices on this. The, the core mechanic is a, a, a rocket has a certain amount of thrust. Mm-hmm. If you want to push, if you want to use that to do a particular maneuver, then the thrust has to be at least as high as the total mass of the spaceship multiplied by the difficulty of that maneuver. But that mass includes the mass of the rocket you're burning. Mm -hmm. Which means as, as the mission gets bigger and heavier, then you need more rockets to push the rockets to push the other rockets. Yeah. It can, some people do find this a bit mathy. Um, there, there are reference cards that make it easier. But you, you do essentially have to plan a mission from, from the back forwards. You know, here, here is the sample that we're going to return to Earth. And therefore, here is how we're going to get that sample back to Earth orbit. And therefore, here is how we're going to get that sample to the previous, and, and so on. Right, okay. Um, I think I, I'm, I've missed in this, Roger, what the main mechanisms are as a, um, as a player. Well, as, as far as uncertainty goes, mm-hmm. um, each thing you develop, has uh outcomes and you you've developed it as well as you can on earth mm. but when, but when you put it into practice it may or may not work you, so you have typically three outcome cards mm-hmm. which are about two-thirds successes and one-third failures so each time you fire a rocket or try to dock or undock or do a do a powered landing or a reentry or whatever um you draw one of those cards yeah if it's a success, that's great. Uh, if it's a failure, then a minor failure will generally do a bit of damage, but you can keep going. A major failure will often destroy the spacecraft. Okay. So this is a bit, almost like a sort of an old-fashioned war game system where you make your decision what you want to do and then you find out whether it's a success or not. Yeah, but you can mitigate that to some extent because when, mm-hmm. when you draw those cards, you, you can pay to remove them. Right, uh, okay. a, a failure costs five money to remove. A success costs ten out of your 25 annual budget. Mm-hmm. Success is more expensive because you don't learn as much from a success. Um, or you can risk shuffling them back in. Right. So, so you've got you've got multiple approaches to that, mm-hmm. and you've you've got ion thrusters, which are reusable rockets, but they take longer. So you need to decide: Am I going to take take a long time, do this very cheap mission, but somebody else might beat me to it? Yeah. Uh, it, it's full of choices, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, the standard multiplayer is competitive. You each have your right. own space program. You you can share information between them, make whatever mm-hmm. deals you want to make. Uh, you can also do multiplayer fully co-op, where basically e- each player takes a different job, you know, mission planning right. or organizing the research or organizing the budget or whatever. It, it, it's a bit loose, but bas- basically, if, if you have a group that lo- that likes chatting back and forth and throwing ideas around, that, that can work quite well. Or, of course, you can do it pure solo because, again, yeah. there, there's, there isn't hidden information. Well, mm-hmm. almost. Uh, <laughs> the, this re- this really applies in in the multiplayer. But so, let, let's say that we've got that example of uh, we don't know whether Venus is landable or not, and there are there are yeah. there are big points available if you land on Venus. I I can send a probe out there and have a peek at it and not tell anybody else whether it's landable or not. Okay. So I know that, for example, I shouldn't waste my effort in, in building a mission for it, but, but I can, I can then, I can then try to bluff and, and so on. 
so so that's a consideration but but mostly it, it's that's pretty much the the only um, negative interaction you get it, it's mm-hmm. it's a competitive game in the sense that it's a race to do the things and, and score the points but yeah. but it's not a um aggressive game at all mm-hmm. uh there are this this is quite a hard game to find because it it's made by a a small company that mostly does crafting supplies and hobby stuff in in um california and right, and okay. they they don't have full distribution i i actually imported a, a whole bunch of copies uh to the uk i see how yeah, i seem to remember you were in the midst of trying to distribute them when we first met yeah sounds about right <laughs> um basically because the the post the postage for a single copy direct from the manufacturer is silly and they're also quite slow about responding to stuff because basically they they will wait until they've got a bunch of orders and then they will make you know 20 or 50 copies and then they will mm-hmm. send them all out uh if you can buy from someone else it's probably worth doing that i, I gather noble knight in the u.s and canada are pretty good for keeping it in stock Right. Uh, there's the Outer Planets expansion. Um, yeah, the, the core game gets you Mars and the asteroid belt as, mm-hmm. as the furthest out. Outer Planets expansion gives you the moons of Jupiter and Saturn and, you know, intense radiation belts and slingshot maneuvers. All, all of this comes all the, out. All the places you want to go on holiday. <laughs> yeah, it, it all comes out quite simply though, which, which is kind of nice. You know, that it, you, you don't have to do the orbital mechanics of a slingshot. You just say, well, okay, um, in, in these years we can launch, we can launch these lower difficulty missions to the, to these planets. Yeah. And if, if we can line things up, you, you can do the, the Voyager Grand Tour mm-hmm. if you launch in the right year. Uh, there's also the stations expansion, which gives you, um, permanent space stations, um, multiple explore. Yeah. Normally in the base game, you, you explore Mars. You've explored all of Mars. Yeah. You, you can, you can now have multiple locations, different things to find. Mm-hmm. Uh, also the, the thing that make, makes a substantial difference to the gameplay is that the, there are missions that basically say, get a sample back to Earth. Um, those can now be done instead by, you, you have a scientist astronaut in, in an appropriate habitat. So you, you have an incentive to send a, a big crude mission out to, as it might be, the moons of Jupiter. Yeah. Um, rather than using remote controlled probes, mm-hmm. which is in the, in the core game that uh, the robots are almost always the way to go. Right. Uh, and, and except for the missions that actually need a human somewhere, and in in this mm-hmm. you've actually got a game mechanical reason to put a human somewhere, even though even though it's not directly scoring your points, right? Uh, which is uh, make makes an interesting twist to it, uh, and you can use you know, either or both of the expansions together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it can be a bit fiddly. Uh, it's a game I I love. Um, ob- obviously, the theme first. Uh, yeah. I, it, it's it's a thing I've. I've been enthusiastic about since I was a kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a, a obviously any game is a compromise bit of, of, of a thematic sort as a compromise between being as realistic as possible and as playable as possible. Yeah, of course. This is probably more towards the realistic end than, than most space games, but mm-hmm. I, th- I think it is playable once one gets the hang of it, and it's just a lot of fun. You, everything you do will end up being at least physically plausible. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right, though, though, I, I seem to remember one of the options for for Phobos is Phobos is hollow and made of metal. Get, get, get a free technology advancement from the from the alien relics you find there. But that was that was actually one of the theories about why Phobos looks the way it does before right, okay. before they were 
you know, close up cameras to take yeah. a look and say, no, no, it's just a lump of rock. So, yeah, it's a lot of fun. Um, well, that's, uh, yeah, it's obviously two games that, um, that you love a lot this month. Yeah, that's, uh, that's, uh, Leaving Earth by Joe Fatula. Very good. Um, so. I've often wondered whether or not I should talk about Walnut Grove. <laughs> um, and I say that because I'm aware it's out of print. But it is a game I love. It is a game that I've been playing, so I am going to talk about it. Mm-hmm. Um, is, it is it a game that, you, that you're that you aware of, that you've played? Uh, I think I've heard the name. I'm just looking at the BGG description, which says, Starve and Freeze on the Plains. So that's exactly. a good start. It's, it's, it's a good old-fashioned Euro theme of, um, yeah, scrimp by and survive or die trying. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a game that came out in 2012 by some Finns whose names I can't remember or pronounce. <laughs> um, and I think at the time it didn't sell particularly well. Okay. Um, and has now sort of reached Holy Grail status for some people and wondering why it isn't coming back into print. Um, my yeah, understanding I, I, is... I see re- recent geek markets around um, 50 to 70 pounds, pounds, euros. Which isn't exorbitant, I don't think. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, in, unless it starts hitting sort of $100, $200 for a copy, I really don't think it's going to come back into print. Yeah. And the reason I say that is because I heard from somebody who'd been to Gen Con in 2016. So four years after the game came out. Yeah. Um, and apparently on the lookout game stand there, they had three pallets of it that they were getting rid of for, for $5 a copy. Right. <laughs> so bearing in mind that kind of, um, stock issue, which is something we might talk about in the, the second part of this episode. Mm-hmm. Um, bearing in mind that kind of stock it, stock issue with the the retail or the the second hand price of it um i don't think it's going to get reprinted anytime soon yeah um so presumably there are lots of copies floating around somewhere but somewhere there Mm. must be and at 50 to 70 dollars yes that's a lot but if you compare it to a euro game on kickstarter these days it's Mm. no different really is it um component quality isn't up to modern game modern board game standards it is, you know, look out of a decade ago standards. Um, but it's quite charming. Um, so what you've got, um, you're, you're, you're playing, um, what would you call it? A frontiersman in America. Mm-hmm. Um, you're setting up your homestead, um, trying to survive basically. Um, play lasts for eight rounds. And each round is divided into four phases. Um, the first phase, what you do is you draw between two and four tiles um, from a bag mm-hmm. and choose one or two of them. Again, so you're, each round will vary and you'll be told each round as to which, which, yeah. which how many of these you're doing. You'll choose your tiles and you'll place them down next to your player mat. And you're sort of building up a landscape a bit like Carcassonne. Yeah, so you've got to match the edges and things like that. You've got to match the edges between four different terrain types, which are um, well, five different terrain types, I think. Um, so you've got pasture, which is producing sheep. 
um, lakes which are producing fish, fields which are producing corn, forests which are producing wood, and quarries which are producing rock. Mm-hmm. Um, once you've placed them down, matching up the, the sides, um, the next phase of the, the round is a worker placement phase, effectively. And you move your worker onto your tile map that you're building up. And they, the next phase then is they produce. So you're basically saying that this time I'm going to go into this particular pasture or this lake or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and each round again will have a bonus. There'll be one particular terrain type that will produce one extra good that round. Mm-hmm. But generally what's hap- generally speaking how it works is they will produce the number of goods that are the number of tiles that are connected. So right, so, so you want you want a big contiguous connected tiles exactly. Yeah. Then that will produce three sheep. Um, next phase again, the third phase is that you go to town, and that's got a sort of a rondel system in it. You mm. move around the town in a clockwise direction, and you can do something at one of those buildings, uh, stores if you like. So you can go to the post office and get some extra goods sent to you. Um, you can go and buy some uh, extra buildings to house your workers in. You can go buy some extra labour, mm-hmm. some extra workers. Um, as you go round the rondelle, there's two points where you've got to give up a coin. There's a, a toll or a tax. Yeah. Um, so you do that. And then the fourth and final part of every round is the traditional feed your workers or die. <laughs> um, you don't actually die. So... The way it works is um, there's four different, four or three, three different colours of workers in the game. Mm-hmm. Um, yellow, blue and white, which match the cube colours for sheep, fish and corn. So they're specialists in that thing. Well, those are the foods that they need feeding. Oh, OK. Fair enough. Um, and again, like with the bonus, um, well, I said, you know, in each round, there'll be one particular terrain type that's going to give a bonus resource. Um, each round is also going to be a, at least one of these labour type work types that needs an extra food. So sometimes okay. each blue worker will require two fish instead of one feeding that round. Additionally... Uh, presumably um, in resources you've got left over, you can then use to buy other things. Um, you can only spend resources in the... In the town during sure. that phase, yeah, um, you can store resources either on the tile. If there's a, each tile's got a number of um, squares, mm-hmm. effectively, <laughs> nice and thematic. But that shows how many of that good type they can hold. Sure, and you also have a barn that you can store goods in. Okay, if so, when you harvest them, you bring them onto the fields and into the barn, and any that you don't have room to store in either of those two places are gone immediately. Okay. Otherwise, they can. St- otherwise, after you, the end of the round and you fed, you you can keep them around to the next round. Sure. Um, the other thing, as well as feeding those workers, you need to keep them warm, and that's where the wood comes in. Um, so you have to. Uh, each of the labourers um, has a, a little a home, effectively, that you're housing them in, mm-hmm. um, and they start off as a, a covered wagon with a fire outside. And you can buy a little proper house to put them in. When you do that, you cover up the fire. Right. So as well as feeding them, you've got to give up one wood for each fire that you can see in an occupied hut. And again, there's some extra fires in each round often that you have to cover that that heating cost as well because it's a particularly harsh winter or whatever it is. And presumably that that 
uh, that building that uh, hut for them is going to cost more than one wood, but you'd only have to pay it once. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Um, so you carry on like that. At the end of the game, you rack up your score. Um, each building that you've built gives you points. Each labourer you've employed gives you points. Um, you get points for fenced-off areas, which is interesting because not all areas have fences. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fenced-off area doesn't have to be a matching contiguous landscape type. So there's something else that you're thinking about there while you're putting tiles on, rather than just trying to make the biggest forest possible. You also want some enclosed areas with fences. Okay, I'm, I'm looking at a photo of the game in play, and, and it's got dotted lines along some of the terrain boundaries. That's your fences. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then there's also some um, some bonus scoring opportunities that you can... A bit like the buildings, you buy them and put them on your board during the course of the game. Um, mm-hmm. There's no player interaction. The game plays up to four players, I think. In solo, it's purely a beat-your-own-score affair, although there is um, something I always appreciate, which is basically scoring thresholds in the game. So you get so some idea of score... how well you're doing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And really, that sort of turns into, in my head as to whether or not I've won or lost, or whether or not I've beaten the, the threshold, in the, mm-hmm. you know, the, the scoring threshold. Yeah. Um, and that's it. Like the game, like Pleponese, the card game that we were talking about earlier in this episode, it's a, it's a half hour game. Um, but with a, a lot of different components to it, the rondelle, the tile placement, the worker placement, that all come together in a really satisfying little package. Um, yeah. yeah, and I, I enjoy it a lot, as I say, and that's Walnut Grove by Unpronounceable Finn. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 it looks as if there's... We, we've already talked about abstraction gap, but I'm, I'm, I'm trying to overcome that. And uh, <laughs> just in terms of, yeah, there, there, are, there are clearly a lot of moving parts here, but you can start to see how how you need to organise this, and then then that conflicts yeah, with and that. I do but think, then you've got the other thing to think about. I mean, about. yes, it's yes, it's a Euro game and has that level of abstraction to it. But I do think that um, most of the mechanisms I f- can be justified thematically. Mm-hmm. So, you know, placing a tile, if you think about your clearing land and expanding your homestead. Yeah. Um, and then sending workers out to, to work in those areas to harvest. Um, sure. Even, even down to, you know, having to feed and, um, feed, feed them and keep them warm. I, you know, I, I, that there is a level of abstraction, but I also think that thematically with a bit, you know, with not too much imagination, I think it does work. Yeah. I mean, you, you're choosing where, at the very least, where your priorities are in terms of, expansion versus using the resources you've got versus yeah yeah and you know this is probably why um you know euro games a decade ago always had similar themes because they're themes that lend themselves to those mechanisms yeah i I don't see a loss of uh early american to be honest no no it's i mean yeah i i said you know it's a typical euro thing in terms of um you know Going out and gathering resources and feeding your workers. But yeah, in, in b- terms building of the a specific farm, yeah. setting. The <laughs> fact that it is, um, you know, 18th, 19th century American West as opposed to medieval Europe is different. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, so joining us this week, this mu- week, this month, we have Michael Kranzler from Heidelberg Games and Ren Mutamaki from Dragon Dawn Productions. Um, 
we Hello, wanted YouTube. to we wanted to talk about board game prices. Um, this is a, a perennial uh, topic of, of consternation, upset, anger um, among board game players. How much does a piece of cardboard cost anyway? Yeah, exactly. It's all, it's all going to be recycled anyway, isn't it? Um, so we, I wanted to invite some people that had some, some real insight as to what the costs are, why things cost how much to do, and whether actually they could cost more. Um, so Michael, as I say, Heidelberg Games now used to work for Pegasus Spieler. So he's got a, a long history of experience working in the, um, the board game market and the German board game publisher sector. Um, and Ren Multimaki Dragon Dawn Productions is a small, um, small independent publisher, mainly publishing through Kickstarter. Um, I don't know if you both like to say hello, introduce yourselves. Oh, hello. Um, my name is Ren, and I have been doing board games since 2008. Um, and um, I think we have done something like 20 different games and expansions uh, in the in this little bit over a decade and uh, yes i'm quite worried of of this phenomenon that games are getting more expensive but probably not from the reason that you are thinking we'll have more of that in a moment <laughs> yes hello i'm uh, michael um, of uh, heidelberg games uh, these days and i'm head of marketing there i used to be head of marketing of the other german publisher pegasus spiele uh, working there for about or with them for about ten years, and now is, I'm in my second year, just uh, to be challenged not only by the new position but also by the circumstances. But we all are. But the positive thing is, like uh, we do uh, more podcasts like this, and we get uh, more <laughs> to know about how things are working. Oh, we're delighted to have you here. Um, okay, I, I'm gonna get the ball rolling here by going straight back to to Ren on something he just said, which was that board games are more expensive, but not for the right reasons. Yes. And I think that um, right now, quite a few people um, agree that board game prices are quite high. Like the unit price itself is somewhat high. Uh, like it could be up to 200 euros. And... Um, for many of the, those products, that's actually not quite enough that it would be uh, satisfactory um, pricing level, like a stable level where you can produce the games and and more or less market the games in, in a way uh, that it's supporting um, like a stable economic base. So many of these smaller companies like ourselves are actually struggling, and it's not because the pricing is too low, but it's because the expectation of what you get with that pricing is actually uh, unrealistically high. I mean, you you mentioned 200 euros there as a figure, then, and I know more games are hitting that price point now, but it's still really uncommon to have a 200 euro board game. I mean, Heidelberg games, Michael, what, what sort of prices are we dealing with there? As we are not one of these uh, miniature-driven <laughs> companies, our prices are much lower, and we're not going through uh, crowdfunding. Mm. Um, I wouldn't say forever, but at the moment, it's uh, not uh, part of our business model at all. So um, as a Heidelberg Games uh, Studio and now Heidelberg Games Company, an independent publisher now, 
um, we uh, focus more on uh, lower price titles. But that also means that we focus more on, uh, uh, we have a bigger amount of uh, games in the market uh, from one title, but it's maybe then it's also only, I don't want to say only, but it's a card game, something you can um, access, play, enjoy, and be entertained by uh, more quickly than those uh, big board games uh, you get for, yeah. if you really want to use the 200 euro games as comparison, it's something uh, you are struggling with uh, uh, basically setting up for a month and then thinking about <laughs> ever playing them. So that's not what we're doing. So our price point is about um, 15 euros, maybe some even less. And mm. of course, we have more expensive games, especially in the German market as we represent um, to international partners there with their board games and they actually do or one of them sometimes has a miniature in there or two or has a higher price point. Because I mean, I, I think that sort of sums it up to me, really. Where you said you know, you, you're not on Kickstarter and you're dealing with these smaller games, 15, 20 euros. And my impression is that what's emerged over the last year or two is a big divide. There are these big games that are normally on Kickstarter that cost a lot of money. At the under, at the other end of it, there's the 15 euro card games, the 30, 40 euro euro games, which those prices really haven't changed in 20, 30 years. Well, they haven't, if I, uh, I want to pick up this question and answer it. Uh, yeah. No, they, they haven't changed that much of the price point there. Maybe they've gone up a bit. Um, but for us, I can say now we have uh, two different kind of uh, card games. Yeah, we have like a normal card game material stuff. Mm. And some of you might have heard of this uh, spicy card game, which mm -hmm. was totally overproduced. So it's a mixture out of the Kickstarter era, and uh, and because it's a bluffing game, the game itself is a bluff, so to speak, and it's gold mm. and shiny and everything. So the price yeah. has, had to be higher. Yeah? We could have mm. used it as a very cheap game. It's a very cheap card game, so to speak. But we said, no, we want to, what we think is expensive, 15 or even more euro uh, for a card game. But therefore, the uh, material has to be exceptional these days to stand yeah. out. But And people uh, buy entertainment. But this price hasn't uh, changed so significantly, even gone up a bit maybe for card games. But the normal um, euro style board games but it's more like depending on material not mm -hmm. on difficulty level it hasn't gone up that much maybe also 10 20 percent yes of course yeah but the expectation what has to be in there has risen certainly yeah and i think that's um i i know yeah cards on the table i i know ren um ren has published two of my games um and i've been involved with discussions as some of dragon dawn's other games we, we've touched on uh manufacturing costs a lot over the years and my impression is that manufacturing costs um in particular let alone things like um you know the the trade wars and um brexit and all the other things that have impacted um currencies and things around the world just the actual manufacturing cost of games has risen quite a lot over the last decade and yet games still cost the same is if i may take this uh... yeah please do Yes, and it seems to be a yearly phenomenon, and I think that it's actually driven by mostly by Chinese government uh, having to have some sort of ec uh, ecological standards, so that the the manufacturers cannot uh, can no longer just put all the waste into the uh, into the rivers and lakes and, mm. and air, and I think all of that is healthy. 
Yeah. But it, it has also meant that um, commodities like like the gray board, the prices have been going uh, annually something like 20 to 25%. So, up. so just to clarify, when we say gray board, you're, you're meaning um, the, the cardboard that's used for games boxes and for some of the, the thicker cardboard components in games. Yes, exactly that. And that is like in our industry, it's one of the most important key, compon- key components um, and that is specifically the um, the material that has mm. has been influenced by uh, these these sort of um, ecological standards that have mm-hmm. been um, imposed to Chinese manufacturers. Obviously, this has also meant that uh, European manufacturers would have been become maybe a little bit more competitive, but still that that hasn't meant that they would have actually decreased their own pricing. Obviously, there are some laws in, in, uh, in force also here in Europe. Yeah. So. Yeah, I, I know one American manufacturer who's, for, well, publisher rather, who for many years has said we are, we are, we from a philosophical point of view, we want to manufacture all our games in the US. But uh, in the last couple of years, even they have gone to China for some of their mm. stuff simply because they, they cannot afford it otherwise in terms of the amount people are prepared to pay for the games. I mean, is, is, Michael, I know you're more marketing than production at Heidelberg. But is this something you're aware of, the increasing uh, manufacturing cost of games? Yes, we are. And yeah. uh, of course... Uh, we are also struck by it. And um, uh, of course, um, what Ren just said about uh, the price for one of the, I don't know if you say raw materials, like mm. this uh, gray cardboard stuff uh, we use uh, to then put the nice pictures and stickers on it so that everything looks uh, shiny. <laughs> and though the cost for paper is very important in the industry on one hand. Yeah. And on the other hand, if you do something with a, a lot of components, and different components, and especially with uh, plastic normally, but also with wood to a certain degree, it's uh, cheaper to produce in China. I mean, otherwise nobody would uh, produce in a country just like for like we're being best friends and mates and we love their yeah. food. But uh, that's uh, that's not the case. It's a lot cheaper there. Yeah. Still. And it's still a lot cheaper uh, to produce there uh, still. Uh, but um, it comes with, uh, I don't know, you say commodities. And... Um, it becomes more difficult, uh, so to speak. And um, the situation now um, has also added to this. And we were also looking for a new partners and production facilities in Europe. Actually, we produced in Europe or even in Germany in the beginning, um, but had to look around as well. And, um, well, yeah. Yeah, I'm aware of it. We are aware we are such small companies. You're usually aware of all of these uh, costs, yeah. Mm. But it's, um, I say, it's maybe hitting home more um, when you do all these ex- very expensive games with a, with a lot, a lot, a lot of components, which is yeah. only component driven and not game driven. So, I mean, if I may say this, like a Gloomhaven, which is a great game and a great component, so to speak, it's rare. A lot of these games are great components and no game, if I may say this. Yeah. Even yeah. I open up another discussion and people might hate me for it. Uh, <laughs> but until you get to the game, uh, you're basically, you're just happy to have it. And I, honestly, if I spend something like 200 euro on a board game, I'm not going to run around and tell everybody I'm stupid. I didn't notice that's a, a shite game. 
<laughs> well, as, as long as we don't have to agree on which games fall into this category, I'm sure we can all get on. We, we can draw up a list off air, I think. <laughs> this is very smart, of course, uh, to handle it this way. Of course, I could uh, look in our list of uh, partners and contributors for the Chermark, especially because mm. our own product uh, is only 10 to 15 products, which are from Heidelberg directly. Um, of course, there are things there where I see they are overproduced and the yeah. game value is not that high. But still, if you have more components, it's getting more expensive and of course uh, in china of course some rules are implemented as well and that's uh, not the worst thing they've done in the last uh, five years i would say <laughs> and um uh, ecologically it was always uh well but it not only goes for board games it was for everything we were producing there and bringing here yeah, yeah. and now we have to rethink this so for example we produce uh, within europe um mainly and um, or mostly actually and uh, what is not plastic i have to say mm-hmm. and but uh, outside germany there are other uh, countries in europe where you can produce where good and great manufacturers if yeah. it's if it's about plastic and as soon as you have higher numbers and as if you have something like with a mold so to speak yeah mm. you're basically uh, lost in costs uh, you can make this uh, your own show lost in cost um, and you have to go to China or you have to just let it be. Yeah. My, my impressions have been that um, card games, European manufacturers now are, are competitive um, in their pricing. But as soon as you've got miniatures, as soon as you've got large numbers of meeples, um, then you know, China still is, is far cheaper. Um, and I think we can all agree that the environmental legislation um, that's causing a rise in prices is good and necessary. Um, the problem seems to be that there's a rising cost which is hidden from consumers, from board game players, who look at a, look at a, a game and say, well, this game's got a deck of cards and four meeples, and this previous game that came out five years ago was priced this. Why does this game cost more? And there's almost a sort of a cart before horse situation where publishers now look at a game and say, well, okay, a game of this type should cost £30. That's what people are prepared to pay for it. And then you go and find out how much it costs to produce and whether you can afford to actually make it. Very much true. And uh, sadly, as I mentioned earlier, I believe that there there, there are kind of, kind of like raising expectations of what do you get with with a certain amount of money uh, in terms mm. of board game components and some of that uh, awareness or perception of what do you should what 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 you should get it's not based on uh, meaningful computation uh, in terms of what is what is eff- effective or economic or um, feasible to to assume that what should you get with with the amount of money and uh, a lot of that is kickstarter related there are so many kickstarters that are promising this and that and even on the successful kickstarters many of those are not actually doing profit because they promised something that is overly expensive to produce mm-hmm. and even if you you got 10 times what you were supposedly getting or supposedly uh, aiming for you might actually do quite sensibly uh, quite uh, quite amazing amount of, of losses in the end and that yeah. is 
part. I could see of, Michael of nodding his head all the way through what you're saying there. <laughs> yeah. I, I think that uh, this is the part of um, of of the business that is almost never shown um, in in the um, in the board gaming community in in a level that it would be understood that okay, how much is it is it skewing the the prices of logistics and the games and you know just mm. giving a wrong impression. I mean, Jagadorn is producing all of its games now through Kickstarter. M- Michael, how, how do you think it, how do you think Kickstarter is impacting where you're working and how Heidelberg is working, which isn't doing games specifically on Kickstarter? Is there sort of a trickle down effect of expectations? Um, I'm a good one to ask this because <laughs> I, I always differ differ from the company uh, opinion. Mm-hmm. Uh, at this point, I did so before in the other company too. Uh, but um, I think um, the way Kickstarter works or all crowdfunding works is actually a great possibility to um, raise money for a certain mm. idea, a certain product. And I love this about Kickstarter or all the other platforms or specialized platforms even. So mm. it's not only Kickstarter has somehow become a, a really a, a big a platform for making board games. Um, now, I mean, there have been uh, launched even other platforms for uh, doing like Kickstarter style uh, board games yeah. financing um, even uh, now this year because they obviously don't want to uh, give money to Kickstarter. Um, but uh, how we, we do it in a very classic way. So basically we have to fi- finance the games first and then sell it. And of course, it's much mm. more painful. On the one hand, it's the classic way. And of course, I always think, and this is a part about the company, is like the Kickstarter money is taken first and then they spend it and they have it already. Then they can pay their uh, uh, employees, of course. And then um, they only have to deliver Mm -hmm. the product. It has its certain advantages, talking about cash flow. And of course, it's not good and it's... uh, uh, bad for our reputation too when they are not being delivered these games. Yeah, and of course, and uh, I like to say this uh, very often is they take out the money out of the market, so to speak. But on the other mm-hmm. hand, um, I don't want to um, um, be very negative about it because I think the Kickstarter audience or uh, that Kickstarter itself and board games on Kickstarter have raised the awareness of board games dramatically too. Yeah. So there's also a positive side effect, like, and, and I, but I can't uh, specify this in like in terms of value of money, yeah. Like mm-hmm. how much board games, like when you're on Kickstarter, you look for something else, yeah. It's completely different for shoes or whatever, yeah. And, mm-hmm. and then you see the best Kickstarters, and there are like five board games among them, so to speak. <laughs> yeah? You think like, hey, ooh, what's happening? So and this is like, mm-hmm. it's like, oh, I want to be on this train too. I, I, I'm certainly, I'm, I'm suddenly, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in this kind of um, a leisure time. Uh, 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 um, use uh, again, yeah, which wasn't there before, and that Kickstarter did something positive there. But of course, it takes out money out of the market, and of course, I have uh, to find everything up front. And, and while I understand for small publishers, this is a great thing, like uh, to uh, be able to afford it. I found it a doubt. I don't know if this word exists. Uh, I have my doubts about like big publishers uh, using it mm. um, and financing it. And they are like, uh, you can name the big ones who are using it. And they're taking out a lot of money, like millions yeah. out of the market. Yeah. But do you think that um, that those sort of big projects on Kickstarter with uh, 
you know, all the deluxified games and all the things that are becoming more and more common on Kickstarter now. Do you think that's changed expectations about what a non-Kickstarter game should look like as well? Absolutely. I mean, um, this is why we have overproduced these little card games uh, so much. <laughs> and, and of course, we can uh, now uh, ask people for more money. Uh, basically, but there are maybe, uh, not maybe, I know there are other reasons behind it, like uh, you want to uh, uh, like have a certain mark in the industry and you make something your signature. Um, and um, cheap uh, card games is not a way to finance a company anyway. And yeah. uh, of course, you will expect from us uh, and you will get it uh, uh, proper board games too. Um, but still, the expectation is higher and um, the, the uh, the expectation for quality components is higher, even they have to be produced uh, cheaper somehow. And um, um, yeah, so this is this is being difficult, so to speak. It's more difficult for smaller companies to use this Kickstarter, mm-hmm. um, to use the Kickstarter um, as a, a financial uh, helper uh, these days than it used to be before, because you have to do so much marketing and be so professional about it, about like showing components up front, mm-hmm. uh, having your marketing videos ready is up front. Yeah, so this uh, whole uh, founder spirit, which uh, it was there on Kickstarter in the beginning, that's for me, it's totally gone. You don't have yeah. a chance to do a Kickstarter, which is just like you and me. We have a great idea and we want to collect money, and we don't want to spend like uh, upfront. Uh, a five-digit number on on marketing uh, mm. stuff. Uh, no chance for that. I think. Roger, you're about to say something. Uh, yeah, I, I get the impression that as as far as typical Kickstarter buyers are concerned, they may well not pay a lot of attention to who's doing it. Um, as far as they're concerned, here is here is a game project. And it, it's got advantages over, you know, help me make my film because you can you can say here are these components, here here's a draft rule book. Personally, I, I never back a game unless it's got a draft rule book because yeah, I, I feel they should have done at least that much before before asking for my money. But I, I think that the there are one or two names that have become mud, obviously, uh, but otherwise, some somebody who's who's told here is the Kickstarter link, here is this game isn't going to say, oh, well, this is just a two-person company and this is, this one is the giant company. Of course, the marketing's going to look better. They just say, well, you know, this mm. looks rubbish. So I, th- I think that's also working against the small guy. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think you mentioned something else there, which I think is almost sort of counterintuitive, where you, you compared um, board, crowdfunding for board games to crowdfunding for films. Mm. And I think films, most people don't really know how much they cost to produce. People will expect yeah. that there's some kind of um, recompense for creative time and effort, whereas board games almost comes. Well, it's probably actually something about board gamers where they can sit there and count the components and say, "Oh well, this this is costing X for this amount of components, and it's not good value." <laughs> when really they've got no idea what it is they're paying for; they just think they do. Yeah, well, same sort of thing with with books. Um, the the cost of producing a paperback book is still mm. even now less than a pound. Yeah, if you're doing it in bulk. Yeah, and a lot of people was were saying when ebooks got started, well, this ought to be cheaper than paperbacks because it's cheaper to produce. Yeah, but that's really not where the cost is going. So, I mean, I, I'm, I, I had an opinion on this before we started the discussion, and nothing's changed my mind so far. And that's that board game prices are being squeezed from two directions. You've got rising costs and greater expectations. Um. So I'd like to ask Michael and Ren um, whether they think that's true. And, well, I was going to say, is it sustainable? But if it is true, it clearly isn't. So what needs to happen? 
And they both hesitate. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, uh, people say about me, I have an answer to everything, but I do not have an answer to everything. Mm. Um, the thing is, what we're talking here about is uh, when we talk about board games and uh, um, I'm a good politician, I just put in the topic I want to talk about. And we talk about <laughs> the rising popularity of board games within the yeah. society. You just didn't say that. I'm saying that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what what kind of board games are we talking about? Because the board games you're talking about, which are on Kickstarter, yeah, they have mm. their certain amount of number of people in the world or in the specific countries um, which buy them. So these are game enthusiasts, these are collectors, mm -hmm. these are gamers, maybe maybe they come from video games and they think this is like a nice merchandising, such an alien game uh, to put on their shelf. Yeah, because their costs are much higher or I don't know, a, a new PlayStation would cost a lot yeah. more. So it's not a big thing. It's still a lot of money, but for somebody, you know, if you're a collector or something and you like something really, you... Uh, you're really willing to uh, pay a lot of money. If you back to the other side, where, where I come from these days, as a, as a from our studio side, as Heidelberg Games, we want to sell to a lot of people, yeah, more than they are on Kickstarter. We want to reach the so-called broader audience, yeah, and Kickstarter mm -hmm. is not the way to reach them actually. So, mm -hmm. and but the expectation has risen there uh, as well, because either it has to be really really cheap there, like uh, I don't know whatever. Uh, Sainsbury's in the UK yeah. or uh, uh, Walmart or whatever, pricing cheap game stuff, or it's uh, uh, it has to be with a lot of plastic stuff, and it's uh, still a thought uh, to be for children, or you have to be a big brand, or you have to have a Hollywood license. This mm. is something which uh, is something which bothers me more these days, uh, like this fantasy flight game stuff where it has gone to, and um, so. They come from two directions, and the second direction mm. is also coming from this so-called mass market. And the mass market or mass market um, um, is uh, still in the hands of very few, and it's hard to get there to introduce new ideas to people. Yeah. Even the the audience is it's, it's broadening. I don't know if you say that, uh, mm -hmm. but it, this is slower than like what uh, Monopoly and Uno and all the other games are still selling in, in the mass market. Yeah, and it's not it's not actually I, how to say like spilling over like a lot of people like. Uh, playing these games now and say like, oh, and now I'm interested in the hobby as well mm. as playing board games. Yeah, they uh, might be completely and, unaware of the hobby stuff. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, like, just one was a great uh, Spiel des Jahres for this uh, kind uh, of people, yeah, but it's, mm. it's still not, not it's not so many tracking over, being tracked over than we might think. So actually big companies are profiting at the moment. Small companies are not so much because we uh, do only like comparison to them little numbers uh, mm. when we have a print run. From my perspective, um, I think we should keep in mind that um, earlier on, I think it was Lee who mentioned that people are kind of like component counting, that how many components do you get and is the amount of components uh, you get, is it feasible? And I really do agree that that's how it, how it often goes. And that's a, a really sad thing because mm. then you are forgetting that the major expense uh, on on producing board games is not really the components; it's it's the work that goes into making the game, uh, not just the components, but actually the game. And that is fairly often, um, from my perspective at least, it's just forgotten. It's it's an it's a comparison of okay, how many cards, how many meeples, how many dice, or whatever mm. you get, and then if you get a kilo more of components, but um, 
a ton less of a game, is it then a good deal? I think yeah. Michael m- mentioned earlier that uh, that you don't buy games that don't that are not really games, but just a, a collection of components. And I wholeheartedly agree. But how do you then uh, advertise that? Okay, this smaller box uh, with less components is more of a game than your uh, game, which is a bigger box and has more air and more components. That's um, that's. Not straightforward. No, I mean, that's very much on the Kickstarter end, isn't it? Where you keep adding, especially with the stretch goals, they keep adding more and more components and more and more components. And ultimately, at the end of that, there's probably little, if no, money left for rewarding the people that have done the work. <laughs> well, they should uh, be able to do that. Because if they do it professionally, of course, they can um, lower the costs for some of those things they're doing anyway. Mm. If you look at companies like Siemen, it, uh, I, I didn't have the impression that they are uh, suffering. So, um, <laughs> sorry, uh, I, I really do not. And uh, But about the counting, I mean, this is something, yeah, the crowdfunding has uh, made this uh, something, yeah, we all do this much more than we did before. But who is we all again? Yeah, generalization is uh, very difficult here. Um, because uh, the thing about that, we as humans tend, when we buy something, to compare prices in our head with uh, mm. a size of a box or um, a packaging where I think it's worth it. Yeah, we do this for ages, and this problem is existing in, in other um, in other uh, areas of the business mm. as well. Not only in board games, but for us, it has be- become even uh, more. Uh, um, important because if you look at these, if I use the, as a German, we always look at the Spiel des Jahres, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you always have to have a certain, uh, um, uh, size of the box as well uh, to fulfill uh, people's expectation. This is like only family games now, yeah. But if you look, I mentioned it before from the competitor and <laughs> the evil Asmodee, <laughs> um, as it doesn't Asmodee mean the devil. And, um, <laughs> and, um, but uh, the, if you look at just one, of course, you could have a box like this much smaller than, but people wouldn't pay the price for it. And, or if you look at a, another a little card game, which one Spiel a few years ago, um, and it's only a little card game, it's uh, so cheap, then it has to become so cheap, it's getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper, and there are not many components in there. People are not willing to pay for the components. But if you make the box bigger, and even if there's air in it, and you claim to have components in it, yeah, people, we are willing to pay a higher price, yeah, because mm-hmm. we, we want it. So it's a, a bit of self-inflicted as well that we that we count components the thing is we cannot really compare the game idea behind it because if i use uh, it's a, a partner in germany from uh czech games edition yeah if you use uh, code names which is probably one of the very most successful family games or uh, yeah. uh, or everybody's style games uh, over the last uh, decade um if you look at it yeah the, the game idea is great, but of course they could have a smaller package as well or a bigger one mm. or they have enlarged the pictures or they have uh, several versions of the game. And uh, and of course you could do it differently. And, but there you have this rare thing that you get away from people accounting um, the content. Yeah, and nobody says like, oh, Codems, it's a bad game. There are only so and so many cards in there because they, they really the idea has struck home. And yeah. But to communicate that this today, yeah, that... 
this this uh, creative work is being honored, so to speak. Yeah, and that if somebody is putting a, a lot of little papers in there and with a lot of great ideas, and you write something on it, yeah, this creative idea, uh, no. Uh, author of a book would have to justify uh, himself mm -hmm. for like um, having uh, the creative idea and writing it down. But the authors and the creators of board games, of course, um, not of course, but unfortunately, they really have to justify themselves somehow that yeah. the idea is great yeah. in itself. And that's, and I think uh, Red will go with me. Uh, um, this is really hard to communicate up front, like the game idea, the creative work, the testing, the the um, why is it fun? Why is code names uh, so much better than similar games which were there maybe before or afterwards? Yeah, so to speak, if if you use this as a as a normal game now, yeah, or why is uh, Gloomhaven to uh, use a very expensive one actually a good game and uh, doing it while other uh, games with a lot of components are not? Yeah, and this is uh, really hard to communicate, and this is uh, part of the problem, and it's a bit self-inflicted because if you can't communicate it, you start to count things which are in the box. Mm. You start comparing the size of the box, yeah, like the the problem, like uh, selling uh, a hot air, basically. Yeah, we all know it, and you're like a bit of uh, 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 yeah underwhelmed when you open a box and it's half yeah. empty, yeah? But it says nothing about the game idea and uh, how the game will be uh, uh, fun to you and your friends to play with each other. Maybe some Kickstarters ought to start saying 45% of the volume of this box contains the creativity of the designer. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm just remembering Splendor, which was great on components. It has that, those lovely heavy poker chips. But the box is four times the size it needs to be. But I think I mean, you, you suggested something there, Michael, which I think is when people get really deep into the hobby now, people start to recognise designers. They say, you know, oh, I, I really like Uwe Rosenberg's games and you look forward to getting an Uwe Rosenberg's game. And yet at the same time, when they're discussing price of board games, there might be a comment of, oh, well, of course, I know that there's more goes into making a game and people deserve to be rewarded for their efforts. But they don't actually discuss that when they talk specifics. They say, oh, well, it's got this many cards, this many tiles, this many boards. It's it's sort of an abstract thing that people say, oh, well, of course they should be rewarded for it. But they don't put a figure on that reward somehow. It doesn't factor into their, their internal price comparisons. I think that it's mostly because, well, I, I couldn't say for sure, but from my perspective, it, it looks like um, the understanding of how much work is there to actually create a board game is not commonly known. Mm. It could be assumed that, okay, uh, if you make a small game, maybe it takes XX time and then you don't know what the XX is and then you just imagine some time and quite often that time is not realistic. It's, mm. it's less and sometimes it's far less than what is realistic. Yeah. Yeah, I think this whole process of like... Uh, as a creating the game on one hand, as Ren said, and then uh, what goes into this work is like this editorial work, I call it, um, when the editors, the in-house or mm -hmm. external editors uh, for a company, if you're a small company, you're, you're your own editor or your own author as well, your own uh, game designer, 
And this time you spend there like um, testing it over and over again. And yeah. or if you do it Rainer Knizia style, yeah, to name uh, a bigger name, which is which is like to normal audiences still he's totally mm -hmm. unknown. Only people in the field know yeah. that he's done this and this. Um, but if you do it Rainer Knizia style, you have like also like uh, there's a math mathematical schemes behind it, yeah, to to calculate everything through, mm -hmm. it, which is fine. And then on the other hand, you still have to uh, um, test basically or see how how. Is it fun to play it, or for what what the purpose yeah. is? Yeah, uh, you you want want to anger the other players by playing it. Does it work really this way, <laughs> or is it a solo game for four players, uh, or something like this? Yeah, mm. and then add basically uh, uh, to to uh, add to the experience of playing a board game. For me, this is like when I consider this because I'm come from the marketing. It's like uh, people spend their leisure time. Uh, 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 Playing, collecting board games, whatever card games, yeah, mm -hmm. and they should have a good experience. And and this go goes into this uh, uh, thinking as well when when you create it as a designer, yeah. Uh, yeah. We, do I have fun uh, playing my own game, and um, will others have fun? You always start like with your own friends, family, whatever, yeah. Mm -hmm. And this uh, this is uh, totally undervalued, I think. Honestly, because yeah. that's why we have so few like star designers out there. Actually, I would consider there is in, in terms of comparison to other to other media uh, and, and uh, leisure things you can do. There is not really one star out there uh, in, in terms of a board game designer. Mm. I think you're right. I mean, in terms of um, game development, uh, our very first episode, we had a conversation, well, second episode, wasn't it, Roger? Mm, we had yeah. a this section of the podcast was a conversation between me and the developer of one of my games, um, talking about the process of development and how it differs from design and all the aspects that go into it. Um, so again, listeners will know that I do think that's an underappreciated, undervalued, unknown part of the uh, part of the industry. Um, and yet all of that effort, the people that are involved in any game, uh, the, the, the credits at the back of the rule book only go so far and just <laughs> naming the number of people that are involved in the production of every single game. There's a lot of people. Yeah. There's somebody I've worked with at Essen who, uh, in, in what, with one of her other hats on does art, art direction. And she, she does a bit of art as well, but mo mostly she's saying, okay, this, this is how we want to combine these assets we already have that somebody else decided we, we would use in the game. Here is how we make them into a card that looks good and is readable and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Which is just not a job one hears about. Roger, I feel like you've been sort of fairly quiet during this discussion. Is there any... I, I'm, I'm further, further out of the industry than, than the rest well, of sure, you. Well, sure, but as, as, you know, so, I mean, if we define you purely as a as a board game player, as a consumer, um, you know, that, that's a valid, valid perspective on the prices of board games. Um, from that perspective, is there anything that you'd like to ask Michael or Ren or that you'd like to tell them or <laughs> maybe they've got it completely wrong? <laughs> well, I, I don't suppose I, it, it, it's one of my running jokes that my, anybody who, who is marketing things to my taste is going to fail. Uh, Many things that I have liked have, have failed because they weren't popular enough and people, people who weren't me. Um, I, I think the, I am curious, um, the, the, the thing that has always been said about the big box with the few components in it has been for shelf presence in, in a retail shop. Is that a thing that really matters anymore? Yes, very much. Okay. 
<laughs> the place, placement in the retail shops is is determined by the box size. Uh, so if your if your game is really small, it, it's stacked in the small game section. And if if all of the other small games are ten euros and yours is fifty, no matter how pretty it is, you you can't get many copies sold. No matter how good your game it is. So sadly, people are having awareness based on the box size, and that's also the placement in the shop. That okay, this is a big box. It can have a big price, and then it needs to have a big presence. Go, on, Michael. I think uh, Ren is right. He's absolutely right about this. This hasn't changed at all. And it's when we go into a shop. Well, the thing which has changed is when do we go into a shop? Mm. And uh, just recently, we... Not at all in the last all, year. All, all of us have <laughs> uh, gone into a shop um, um, uh, for a longer period of time, I suppose, uh, for all of us. Mm. Um, and so the question really is, why do we still do it? And... Um, This is maybe, I don't have a, a clear answer to that because, of course, um, especially when you uh, want to fulfill the needs of the retailers, yeah, or the retail chains, yeah, you have to go by their, it's their playground, so to speak, yeah, you have to fulfill their, uh, the size in boxes. But if you don't do this, um, maybe we are changing not too slowly, but sometimes we don't adapt to the market um, um, very quickly. And I had this discussion before. It's like, who is the game made for and where is it sold? And this is where my uh, field of business comes into play, actually, because I had this discussion about a game once uh, brought over uh, to Germany um, uh, by my former um, employer, and that was uh, Onitama. And we didn't uh, want to do mm -hmm. it in the beginning there because it's, it's not uh, going going into the retail, uh, the normal retail, because of the box. We had to change the box and everything. Mm -hmm. But I said this magnetic flag box, it looks like uh, like a, a whiskey thing from, from Scotland. Yeah, it's like this, this Japanese-themed uh, two-player game, yeah? And it's a, a very a good-selling, I think, a best-selling game for them now. And for I think it comes from... Well, I forgot about the original publisher in the US. Um, doesn't matter. <laughs> and... Uh, And I brought it over into the German market and uh, there was market uh, for it because it never hit the, the normal retail in the beginning. And uh, now it's maybe like a more like gift shops or stuff. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, um, you can also look into other cultures as we are like so culture uh, interested uh, these days and uh, a very difficult uh, culture to understand. Um, the Japanese, uh, they mm -hmm. have brought over by their little cute boxes and uh, this uh, published from uh, Japan which is everything doing in the very very small boxes yeah uh, you have to help me now with games them. thank you very much yeah <laughs> and there you can see they come from a, a completely different background or uh, thinking about sizes here yeah, so to speak mm. yeah and um, they made it an art to pack as much stuff into these very tiny boxes yeah mm. and they had a high price and in the beginning because I was talking to them as well and at the one point or the other in my uh, professional career, they didn't want to go away from the high price for a little box. They said it's not mm -hmm. worth it. Like, And um, in the end, may, they might or they will be right also for Europe that um, this will be their, their like outstanding with this thing yeah they they mm -hmm. have this very little box everything fits in there you you can have like a, a european style board game in this little box and you can uh, um um bring it everywhere and play it everywhere and they haven't gone away for it because from there i suppose home experiences like little boxes are a lot better than these yeah. uh, blown up boxes which is everything is empty 
And there you can see that it depends on where you basically, what's your home market, what's your own situation is. Do, do we have space? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think this, this uh, has to change and it's also cheaper to pack everything in smaller boxes mm -hmm. or in smaller parts as well. Yeah? Ren, what do you smaller think? Smaller boxes would also mean uh, less logistical costs and less warehousing costs and so forth. So going into smaller boxes, like I think Garp Hill Games is a very good example of, of uh, designing games that are like mm -hmm. having boxes that are exactly the correct size. There are, there are no like extra empty space of any kind, and not, not even any inserts because they are so full that you can't... So have they're it. typically slightly smaller than Ticket to Ride size boxes, aren't they, their games? Yes, yes. Yeah. And still can weight close to two kilos. So it's full of all the components uh, and there is nothing extra. I think that's that's a design that is very appreciable mm -hmm. uh, from, from both economical and ecological standpoint of view. Because if we explore, if we explore this point, yeah, because box mm. sizes and this empty empty air we are carrying over from China, yeah. this costs a lot of money, and you can avoid it basically doing this. Yeah. And we're talking about uh, pricing. Yeah, if you can bring over a thousand boxes uh, for the shipping cost of five hundred, and shipping costs will be a, a big uh, uh, game changer now because mm. shipping from China has become uh, much more expensive than it used to be and much more unreliable thanks uh, to the this little <laughs> channel thing. Uh, hmm. I think all board game companies have jumped on this like, oh, my game was on there. Like horrible guilt. <laughs> like, oh, our, our, our unicorn uh, uh, pulled it free and stuff. They're much fun about the, the Swiss canal here. Uh, but still, it just showed us not only how the world economy is vulnerable, but also the board yeah. game economy is right in the middle of that. And of course, we can uh, bring a lot more over or we can store it here or manufacture it here and store it more easily uh, for lower costs uh, in England, in Germany, in uh, wherever. Yeah, and doesn't cost so much. And so maybe when you produce something, you can even produce a bit a higher number. I'm just guessing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you don't have to worry so much about uh, uh, st storing it somewhere, because if you produce 3000 of a game, like say, and this is a big, quite a big box, you have a lot, several pallets full of this uh, games and you have to store it somewhere and this costs you money you have to yeah. find a place to do it and the uh, uh, producers the uh, print printing companies they are not so happy about it uh, when you just leave it there or they actually have made a, a business out of it yeah hmm. so um so there are certain factors we can actually influence as uh, the creating side the creative side as Heidelberg Games and as Ren is doing with his company and uh, where we can influence things yeah of course at, at the end of the day if we want to ship something into the store like into a normal store we have to play by their rules hmm. too it's an interesting point it's sort of Reminds me of the, what's happening with um, cleaning products in Europe now, where a lot of them are doing moving to a model of being more concentrated fluids in smaller boxes so that their trans transportation costs are lower, the environmental impact is lower because they're transporting more products in one go. Um, that's all, almost the opposite of what we've been doing with board games. <laughs> paying, paying to transport lots of air around the world. I'm aware we're starting to run out of time now. So I'm going to go around each of you just to ask if there's anything else that 
you would like to say that we sh- you think we should have covered and we haven't covered? Um, Roger, do you want to go first? Why do people like miniatures? <laughs> uh, if if I say to a, any random board game a Kickstarter game, they're going to think big. They're going to think lots of minis, and probably bigger minis than the last game. Yeah, obviously this can't last, but I, I've just never seen the appeal of it. Possibly because I'm a really bad painter. <laughs> I, think I guess that feeds into what we were talking about earlier of extra demands pushing up the cost of things. People wanting more for their money. Yeah. I really believe that we are going to see it's it's lasting for quite some while because uh, the the techniques on on making minis are getting cheaper and better and more precise, and that means that there is going to be demand for more and more of minis mm. that, that are more precise and bigger and cooler and so on. Mm. And I think that it all stems from the from the fact that they are. Uh, for some people, it's it's cool to touch, to, to 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 feel and see, and it's it's giving the three-dimensional view of, of something. For some, it's just eye candy, but I think for, for many, it's just no matter what kind of components you have, as long as you have plenty. And that's yes. bad. Uh, that and I think miniatures are almost a, a separate thing unrelated to board games. The, the miniature distribution channel is going to be changing a lot in the next five years as more, yeah. more people get access to 3D resin printers and things. Yes, absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. I think that... Um, I think go on that, then, Ven or Michael, you're talking. But is there anything else you'd like to talk about that, that we haven't covered? I actually wanted to go into this uh, resin thing and about the mm. miniatures. And I think... Um, it's not like a final statement, but if you ask like what's not covered, like we have covered a lot about like uh, uh, where the pricing comes from and goes to like of uh, a board game recently and um, how this is inflicted. We haven't done everything. Like we could have gone more into detail, like how much is like uh, that wooden components that they're good uh, when you have a small number of of games, yeah, uh, but you don't get, uh, uh, they're not getting cheaper if you, produce a thousand or a million copies of wooden components always stay at the same price level at one point yeah unless yeah. it gets cheap and stuff like this yeah we could have covered this but i would leave it out at this point because it's, <laughs> uh, it's uh, I, we covered it with that uh, I, what i'm saying now uh, what i would like to emphasize is like when we think about board games now and what i see a chance in is i think i think and this is my something I'm, I'm telling people for a longer period of time i think the board game industry will go will undergo a traumatic change again once more the one they did before magic the gathering and the one they did before uh um katan basically because mm-hmm. the technology to play a board game will change and it's mm-hmm. changing right now and some of the science fiction science fiction things which have happened to us already or have uh outdated science fiction uh so to speak like our mobile phones our smartphones are not mobile phones anymore like our communication centers are the center of our life sometimes yeah they have changed uh, our life dramatically i think that uh, the possibility to um get a components or stuff at home like through 3d printing through printing in general um, will change or could change the board game industry dramatically and uh, could put the power into the hands of the creators again, 
so to mm. speak, like also like smaller companies, because uh, people maybe can buy and print it out uh, at home already. And uh, yeah. there's there's a whole forefront already out there with their their 3D printers and printing out 3D models and stuff. And it's a whole community, and they are actually without wanting it, maybe they're endangering this whole miniature-driven board gaming thing. Yeah, and I'm saying this will vanish. And this, I'm, it's, it's broad and it's, it's a tall stand mm. I'm making here. But this, uh, miniature driven board game and stuff, it will vanish because you can print it at home or you yeah. buy it from a specialist because you want to have like certain miniature with a certain quality. Yeah. But this middle ground, this will vanish at one point and so, it will, it will be more about the board game idea again. And this is something you really sell like the, 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 uh, the, the 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 idea behind the game the 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 game itself yeah you pay for the game idea because you can produce everything at home somehow and that's not only going to be for board games like for for spare parts everything yeah in the world yeah mm. so but board games they could benefit from it quite early and of course like if I would be a big a major company I wouldn't be interested in it, like this is going to happen yeah um, but if I'm a small company for me it might be a, a, a big chance actually to do something again. Um, uh, away from the Kickstarter thing or selling something like for a decent price, like 20 euro or 20 yeah. pound, uh, an idea. And, but therefore you print a lot of your components yourself somehow, because of course this tech technically it has to work a lot better than now. But honestly, think about all the other technology, technology, which has developed in, in, in the last 10, 20 or 30 mm. years only. Yeah. And, but this time it's true. This time it will change. I'm absolutely certain about this. It's a really interesting point. And maybe that is where we start to value creators more. Um, and again, going back to miniatures, there are now some miniature sculptors um, who are on Patreon. And you can subscribe to them. And once a month you get a, a new um, miniature that you can download and print ahead of it being available for sale to other people. And that that frees them up to create the models that they want instead of working to commission. And it means that people are valuing their work over and above looking for individual models. And perhaps that's something we could see in the future with a small game publisher um, saying, well, okay, we're going to produce X amount of games per year. You get access to them instantly to, to print at home. Um, and then after three months, six months, whatever else, we'll, we'll make them available for general retail. I don't know. Maybe that's something that could happen. Maybe it's feasible, but I don't think that it's, you know, this year or next year. No. It, it requires no. some quite big changes in the uh, infrastructure of how people can, for instance, print things. Yeah. Uh, and so on. And that will come back to that to, to finish up. But just first of all, was, was there anything else you wanted to, to mention then? Yeah, I think um, if, if we want to, to, to summarize, or if I want to summarize something mm. that uh, what should come out of this discussion, or I, at least what I hope would come out of this, is that whenever any one of, of, of the listeners will consider that, okay, should I buy this game or that game, uh, please consider more than just the components. Consider that is the game as a game worth of, of the price tag. And if it is, maybe then it makes sense to buy it. But it's it's a larger consideration than just mm. uh, how many cards or meeples or dice do I have in the box. Yeah. That leads me nicely onto the the closing question, um, which was, you know, we're all agreed. I think that something needs to change. So the question was, what needs to change, and how how does and how does it change? I don't know if we can change it, but how does it change? 
nobody wants to pick well, up on that. Thank you for 3D printing that, that was, we've just been talking about. I, I am the only person among my immediate group of friends who operates a 3D printer. And sometimes people say, you know, you've designed this model. Where can I get a copy uh, without, without me actually shipping it to them in the States or Australia or whatever? And, and all I can really say at this point is find your local makerspace. They will have someone who you know, either will teach you to do it yourself or will run them off for you. But I, I, I think what they, there used to be a, a, a site that put together people with 3D printers with people who wanted stuff printed. They, they've closed down and gone business to business. But I think there is a role for a site like that that just says, you know, OK, I am living in northern Scotland. Where is my nearest guy with a printer where I can where I can get stuff made? Mm-hmm. And if you get something like that, that that effectively becomes a utility, then then you start seeing what we might call three D print and play games. Yeah, it's it's going to change over time. We think we're at the stage of three D printing now, almost like it was. Um, you know, well, with your analogy of um, you know a place down the road where you can go and get something printed. Mm. It's like when uh, you went out to wash your clothes at a laundrette, or when yeah. you went out to use the payphone. Yeah, eventually I mean, they all come into the house, and the infrastructure changes. At the moment, I'm not doing enough for myself to keep a printer running full time, yeah. but you know it could happen. <laughs> yeah, but it's always uh, down to uh, convenience, and uh, we experience it at, at certain uh, points in uh, technological advancement. I'm losing my English here, and <laughs> when te- te- technology evolved, basically, or was revo- uh, was a re- revolution. My evolution is always like it's going up, up, up. Things are changing, and suddenly mm. there's a big step now. We have seen mm. what we are able to during uh, COVID-19, what we're doing now, like how we change, how we evolve, basically, and how, mm. how we change things around here. Yeah? And this will have a, a longer time effect, so how many things we can do at home or create at home or have to have at home, yeah? And this will uh, change our thinking. And about the 3D printer thing, I don't know, think uh, this will be happening uh, today or tomorrow. But on the other hand, some things are just happening suddenly. You think like, oh, they were not there and nobody was aware of that that will happen and that it did yeah. happen, yeah? Um, and it, it, it shook a, a whole market. Like if you consider like mobile phones turning into smart devices, mm. yeah? And now smart devices turning into your home, into a smart home. And um, we have been unaffected from all these uh, things in the board game industry for a long period of time. Yeah, not that dramatically, but what I'm saying is like this will change uh, uh, sooner or later. And I'm um, I'm not necessarily um, saying that things have to change in board game pricing, and that's maybe why Ren or at least me I was surprised before because you gave the answer. You said like uh, things have to change, yeah, um, but I can't really change things like on, on a big scale mm. yeah, I can, in pricing. There are certain things I cannot influence. I cannot influence the paper price. I cannot influence yeah. the the environment in the way that a lot of wood is being cheap on the market now, but it's mm. low quality wood. We will certainly never ever produce board games without wood-free paper. That would be silly. I, I once asked Swedish people to do that. They laughed at me. So of course <laughs> there's a lot of wood there. There's a lot of woods there and there are a lot of uh, wood to use to create paper and it's really cheap there, cheaper than in China maybe. And um, so it depends on on this. But I think um, this will change and it will change dramatically. Mm. And at a point, we might not be aware of it uh, anymore because we thought, uh, but it's in the market already, you know. And yeah. I think, but, but why didn't it do it? Because it wasn't convenient. And this is like my closing statement. It's like, I don't know if it will change this much right now with Kickstarter and everything. 
But mm-hmm. I think that technology also has the uh, ability to give uh, the power back to the creators, so to speak. And it depends on us then if we are using it, if we can can organize ourselves or as um, um, Roger just said, like uh, people could uh, ask him to print out uh, mm. 3D models, but they, they don't even know that he's uh, having a 3D printer. Yeah? But this has, has to change in your mind first. And there will be maybe uh, sidesteps, but that things are like our, our uh, tablets, our uh, uh, computing devices, yeah, that they're more like a normal game board as well, maybe, mm. where you change your game board quite rapidly. Uh, but on the other hand, you will still have this thing that you touch things when you play games, yeah? And um, you want to have this, yeah? This, this will yeah. come together mm. at, at, at yeah. one point, yeah? But what I'm saying is like for smaller publishers and for smaller designers, that could also be a chance, like not to think about like, oh, how many miniatures do I need to sell a body? So just like, I want to have this game and I leave this idea then uh, to the production manager again, like how to manufacture it. And again, mm-hmm. and we have more freedom in manufacturing thing and having a price more accordingly to this and still paying people like me who are actually working marketing and thinking about things like how to market it to people. <laughs> Ren? Well, from my perspective, um, I don't think we are changing things or seeing super big changes in, in near future at least unless there are major changes in, in the infrastructure that supports the, the, uh, the business area, the, the whole, whole business domain of uh, board games. Mm-hmm. Um, distribution is one of those things that uh, if there will be some major changes, then we can see also some really big changes in how, how, how the whole system operates. But like if that that is not changing then it's it's very hard to see or predict what kind of quick changes would there be yeah but i think that a good start would be to somehow spread more information on what it actually takes to to become a creator and how you could whoever is listening would become a creator that could take part of the the business then again it should be also mentioned that, uh, that the business is not always golden so not everyone become rich <laughs> i think it's actually quite rare and remote that it happens we're, we're all sat here on our piles of money right now though yeah yeah <laughs> obviously but it, it's still a possibility it's it's more uh, likely possibility than you winning in a lottery <laughs> And it's so something needs to change or something will break is the <laughs> the takeaway from that. <laughs> I thought Michael had a much more positive conclusion. Yeah. True. <laughs> and actually uh, what I was saying basically was that these big Kickstarters where you sell a lot of stuff, um taking a lot of money out of the market basically. I mean Ren is doing Kickstarters a lot too. Yeah. So mm-hmm. but he is uh not seaman, I suppose. And um um they and when I said they will vanish, yeah, I mean, it's a, a bold, uh, bold me saying that, yeah, but there might be not a need for that anymore at one point. There will always be a need, on the other hand, for big things, for big money. You want to spend a lot of money for cool things you want to have in all parts of your life, yeah. And that, that's not only board games, of course, but I think this, uh, when we look back uh, at it in 10 years' time, not like shortly, or in 10 years' time, this will be will have been the golden age of the the, the Kickstarter uh, board game 
uh, a time and it will vanish like other things have vanished and it will be not yeah. it, it will be still there maybe it's just part of of a normal business you do like crowdfunding there will be even more like smaller platforms maybe competing ones more specialized yeah I don't know because uh, people are really interested in it. They go to the specialized platform. They don't even have to go to Kickstarter anymore because, you know, you, you don't reach all the people there anyway. Um, the ones who are interested in other stuff. I don't know. But I think um, this will change at one point. How many of our smaller companies will survive this? That's a different question. I will, <laughs> I, I, I will tell you in 10 years time. Okay. <laughs> and I'm, I'm, I'm happy to talk with you, uh, Roger and Rendon again. Okay. Well, it's been really nice having both of you on the show. I think it's been a really good, interesting conversation. Um, before you go, I'd like to give you both the opportunity to promote anything that you've got coming up, anything you'd like people to hear about. Michael, you're hesitating. <laughs> I, I I never hesitate, but as I'm in this show, I might be like the older, I don't know, or the supposed to be a normal company representative i wanted to give Ren <laughs> the chance uh, uh first uh, uh to um bolster his case i don't don't worry i don't think ren's shy in coming forwards either yeah so Ren, go ahead fire at will okay so obviously we have some new cool things coming <laughs> like purchasing mode the card game called beyond the rift in this mm -hmm. summer by Nicholas, uh, I think you you had Nicholas in some earlier. We did episode two, and he, he, we talked a bit about Beyond the Rift at the end of that episode. Yeah, and obviously that the big thing of this year will be the, the Soulspire, which is um, the, the the biggest project that our company has ever done. And yes, it comes with the uh, damnable miniatures that uh, Roger <laughs> is not so. Keen. So Roger's not backing it. Yeah. <laughs> But it also comes with a, a lot of story that you can read. So it's a it's a combination of not only having just the miniatures, but actual story and real game and other things that are cool to have. <laughs> and uh, I think when we had this sort of discussion earlier on that, what are we planning to do? Like, is a subscription model interesting? That's, that's actually something that... Um, kind of like sparked my attention and interest, we should consider that. It's an interesting thing. Um, we are doing something like four to five games a year. So yeah, mm. that's an interesting model. We have to have an, another um, discussion session, maybe at some, <laughs> some later point about that. As long as I get my royalties. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Michael, the floor's over to you, I think. Um, this is, this is uh, correct. I would um, uh, like to promote Heidelberg Games as a whole, no, and uh, yes, mm -hmm. and uh, with uh, the other games we did, uh, because our we come from a brand value different to others, and our games um, are new to the international market, so we have had to find uh, our spot there, and it was uh, what we, we have even invented a marketing uh, word for it, it's the Radiant Culture Series, and wow. these are these, <laughs> oh, yeah, actually, it's only existing in English, we don't have that in German, because in German <laughs> they would all say we're crazy, like, what, what? 
and uh, but like um, which is like um, as we have chosen to when we create um, art for our card games these days we always try to use like artists from the region like some African scene we looking into and mm -hmm. it's possible through the internet age easily to have uh, um, artists from Africa or we have nice. uh, a game redone uh, called Coyote from Alpes Batikarelli uh, and the other way around Spartago Albatarelli I always mix it up and um, we did it like with a Native American artist and uh, put a lot of work in there or time right? you usually don't mm -hmm. use for like uh, um, uh, the creative side of the look and uh, the feel so to speak of a game and we put all those games the next uh, game coming out is a place it's based on a Russian theme so we have a Russian artist we had a Korean game a based game first it was called Spicy nothing to do with Korea but we had these Korean tigers on it so we had mm -hmm. a, a Korean artist of course uh, illustrating it and um, so that's what we're doing at the moment. And of course, we have we create riddle games, but it's all more like mass market, so to speak, with a decipher, uh, a create games, a, a remake of, of a game from the 70s and 80s where you have to guess very good for actually playing with your friends over a video conference at the moment. And um, this is what you can expect from us uh, at the moment, of course, we have one game with miniatures too. It's called Volt, <laughs> and it's about robots, and they shoot at each other. So you have to, you have to do yeah. something with miniatures. We discussed Volt um, two, three episodes ago. Yeah, all right, yeah. very nice. There we go. Yeah. I forgot yeah. that was Heidelberg. This is a Heidelberg <laughs> game, actually. Yeah, it wasn't, and now it is, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we have a new. <laughs> by the way, we have new miniatures coming out at one point, <laughs> sooner or later. But there, yeah, for example, we're still discussing the idea of how to uh, distribute them about like having like uh, an add-on, yeah, or mm -hmm. be uh, completely crazy and do something like with 3D printing. But we're st uh, still at the <laughs> at the point where discussing that crazy idea of me. Yeah, so that's what you can expect from us. So look out for more of these little card games available in a good board game shop near you. Absolutely, even uh, in the driven of uh, islands from far away and can't seen anymore, be seen anymore from the mainland <laughs> <laughs> behind the mist. That's that's why this is a podcast, and we can only talk to each other but not see each other anymore. That's it. <laughs> the mist, the mist of board game Avalon. Uh, okay. Okay. Then. Well, thanks again very much, both of you, for for joining us. Cheers, I think it's been a really good discussion. And, uh, yeah, that's us. That was More Games Than Time with Cornish Lee and me, Roger B.W. If you'd like to get in touch with us, leave a message on the website, and we hope to see you again next month. <laughs>